Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. It is highly unusual for two biographies of an Australian author to appear within a month of each other, both written with the subject's cooperation. But that's what's happened to Frank Morehouse, whose books include Grand Days, Cold Light, Dark Palace, The American's Baby, 4017, The Everlasting Secret Family, and many more. First cab off the rank is Frank Morehouse, A Life, from journalist and feminist author Catherine Lumby. A month later comes a two-volume scholarly and literary biography by Matthew Lamb. Now, I must be honest, I had hoped to speak to both biographers together, but Matthew Lamb declined. I spoke to Catherine Lumby in Sydney. Catherine Lumby, welcome to Life Sentences. Pleasure. Now, I'm going to dive in and ask you something about a sort of very unusual circumstance, really, with this biography is that you are one of two. It's very unusual for two people to produce biographies of the same Australian author virtually at the same time. What was it like knowing that you were, in fact, one of two authorised biographers, Mm. both of whom had been given access to Frank Morehouse's archives? Did that make it feel like a race? Did it make it feel like a competition? And was it important to be first? Well, firstly, it's not that difficult to access Frank's archives. So pretty much anyone can do that. So I I don't sort of I didn't see it as a form of authorization. Neither did I see myself as an, as the authorized biographer, although Frank did approach me, you know, over ten years ago, with the idea that we'd collaborate in the, in the sense that I would show him chapters for fact checking purposes only, and I'd had a, a long friendship with Frank. Look, people can get very competitive in the literary world. I'm not naturally someone who competes with other people. I think I compete with myself a lot. But I think Frank deserves many books. So it's just not my nature to feel competitive about an enterprise like this. In fact, the first time I saw Matthew Lamb in the archives over would have been about 10 years ago, and I knew we were both researching Frank, I took him out to dinner and I said to him, I'll share anything I've got with you, and he was generous with me. I'm very excited about Matthew Lamb's two-volume biography of Frank Morehouse, and I really wish him well. I hope it goes brilliantly. Given that he's writing something that is much bigger and your book is an absolutely masterly kind of act of compression, I think your biography is about 260 pages, how did you choose your themes? Because each reads almost like a kind of self-contained essay. I think the themes chose me. Essentially, it was always my intention to write a book which was not just about Frank, but about the cultural milieu that formed him and that he talks about in his writing, so Balmain, Bohemia, the 70s, and all the complexities of gender, sex and politics that marked that era. His public activism, which, you know, was particularly around censorship and copyright and author's rights, and then aspects of his life that were very formative for him, growing up in a middle-class, respectable country town household in Nara and his love of the bush. On top of that, of course, there's the fact that he wrote erotic material and that he explored themes of bisexuality and cross-dressing. So there, I, I think I described Frank once as 
like a house with many rooms and rooms within rooms. And so my I really chose the drawers that I found most interesting or the rooms, the keys to the rooms that I found most interesting. But, there, you know, there's so much you could say about Frank. It was as though he lived 63 lives in one. Yes, well, as you say, you had a lot of material to sort of choose from there. I want to explore your sense of responsibility around biography because this is your first biography you're a writer known for many other things but biography has its own kind of principles and you say some very interesting things about that so first of all one of the things that you say that intrigued me is you say you wanted to be frank but instead you became his friend and <laughs> then his biographer and obviously being his friend and his biographer creates a particular sort of well I don't know what it creates in terms of obligations but as you say you know he was not going to ask you to take anything out he was only going to correct matters of fact can you talk about how your friendship was altered by the decision to also become his biographer yes so we met when I was in my early 30s and I was living in New York and I'd read his work as a teenager in Newcastle and he was, I think I saw him as a kind of exit sign. He was writing about this very exciting world which definitely wasn't Newcastle in the 1970s and I told him that when I met him, that my parents had his books on my on their shelves and how influenced I was by them and I think he was probably flattered and that maybe may explain why we formed a friendship. And so we were, we had a friendship that went on really for another 15 years or so before the biography question came up. Frank always espoused, uh, publicly at least, that he did, didn't see any value in privacy. He thought it was a sort of bourgeois norm and that people should be far more open about their sexuality and so forth. But in practice, there were things that he wanted to keep to himself. So I know things that happened in Frank's life which I have not put in the biography. I know them through friends of his, which he didn't he chose not to discuss with me with me as the biographer. In the same way that there's a lot of material in the archives that is very revealing about intimate relationships he had. And unless I've directly interviewed the person it concerns, I have chosen to exclude that material. I have a principle of do no harm as a writer. And I, I adhered to the same ethic as a journalist, which meant I probably had less front page stories than I might have. But I do not think any book is important enough to cause pain and damage to other people. That is a very, very sound guideline and principle to adopt. It's, it's almost like you're a doctor when you say first, do no harm. <laughs> I, I love that. But for example, you say interestingly, that you think each biographer recasts the form. And I wondered what you meant by that. Well, the first thing my wonderful publisher, Jane Palfreyman, said to me when she started reading the draft was she said, this isn't really a biography, is it? What is it? And I said, well, it, it, it is in my mind, it's a thematic biography, as you said. And when I interviewed David Marr, who of course wrote the gold standard biography of Patrick White, he said, you're writing this chronologically, aren't you? And I said, no. And he said, are you mad? And I said, maybe. The themes called to me and 
So I wrote about the things that I found most interesting in Frank's life. So that's why it's called Frank Morehouse, A Life. It's my version of that life, but there are many ways you can write a life. And so the choices I made were both about the structure and shape of the the biography, but the major decisions I made were ethical ones. So it was not so much what I put in, but what I left out that I think very much shapes and frames this biography. I want to come back to that later with a particular specific case. But I guess one of the things that makes him such a rich subject is that he was so multifaceted and in many ways something of a paradox. So I think um, the literary critic Susan Wyndham put it very well when she said he lived between hedonism and hard work, joie de vivre and melancholy, grandeur and poverty. Was it that sort of paradoxical multifaceted quality that you wanted to shed light on? Yes, and I think I probably relate to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not the melancholy, but Frank had this very almost Protestant work ethic that he inherited from his parents growing up in Nowra in a country town where his father ran a a, a business with the wonderful name Morehouse the Machinery Man. Yes. And he invented the dairy boiler, which for sterilising milk. And Frank's mother was the head of the CWA and there were very upstanding people and A work ethic was very important to them. And so when he approached his writing, he would get up and he'd go for a run, go to his desk, roll up his sleeves, and he would work all day, sometimes six days a week or even seven days a week towards the end of a large project. But when he went to lunch, he went to lunch. And in the evenings, he'd, you know, have a a couple of drinks when he was going back and editing his work. And so... And and, and I guess in Bohemia in the 70s in Balmain, it was a time of, well, allegedly free love. How free it was, you know, how freeing it was for women is another question. And, of course, everyone was smoking dope and, you know, they were fairly hedonistic times. So he was pulled in two directions, I think, throughout his life. And in a sense, that's why I, I mean, I think that that's a deep-seated theme in him and a deep question in all his work. How many rules do we need to keep ourselves sane and civilised? He wasn't a fan of rules but and he knew we needed them. So the question was always how many is too many? How many is enough? Yeah, I love the fact that you point out that he had a particular preoccupation with etiquette. Yes, which is very funny actually. He took it very seriously and I, we're going to talk, of course, about the Edith trilogy but... You know, if you went to Frank's house at six o'clock at night, you know, sometimes I'd go to do an interview with him after he'd been writing and he would suggest a drink and there'd be one martini, no more than one, and there would be nuts arranged just so and he liked the ritual of it. So he was, he, he really, he had rules about eating and conversation, very important rituals to him. And in fact, in the Inspector General of Misconception, which is a wonderful book of comic essays, he, he, he satirises his fascination with rituals. And I think that, of course, the interest in rules finds its fullest expression in the Edith trilogy. 
But it's interesting, isn't it, Catherine? I'm just remembering that when he's young, and I think he's at a sort of careers advice session, he has to fill out a form about what he wants to be. And number one, very young, he says he wants to be a writer. But the other two choices are an army officer and then, most hilariously, an expressive dancer. Now, given his aversion to rules... He wouldn't have lasted two seconds as an army officer. So what was that about? Well, he did grow up in the country and he was in cadets and he was in Boy Scouts. He was expelled from the Boy Scouts. (laughs) Correct. He was expelled (laughs) from the Boy Scouts for organising a petition (laughs) trying to democratise the Boy Scouts. (laughs) I do not know what Baden-Powell would have made of his petition. Well, his father was not amused. His father was not amused. And so there was, I'm sure we'll come to this, there was that side to Frank that was an outdoorsman, really. And so it wasn't that he completely abandoned rules. He was always toying with how many we need. He was fascinated by committees, for instance, and the correct way of doing things. So in a way, that list, writer, of course he was a writer. He was born to be a writer. You know, army officer, Part of me understands that. He loved bushwalking. You can see him enjoying the the kind of work ethic and discipline of the army. I think he would have liked the uniform. He would have liked the uniforms and the expressive dancer, of course. Well, that's the sort of bisexual cross-dressing side of Frank, I think. That's the feminine in Frank. Yes, yes. Well, it is a fantastic list. I can't imagine any other list of aspirations on a, on a career form that would match it. <laughs> You call him our man at the cultural cliff edge, which I think is a lovely phrase. It's a powerful image. But why? Why do you call him that? Well, what I'm suggesting is he stands, this is again about rules, he stands on the precipice of things, running his hand along the railing and staring down with alarmed fascination at the jagged rocks below. So that's about the wildest beasts of hedonism. You know, what are the bears that lurk in the woods when you let yourself go? whether it's through alcohol and drugs or or falling madly in love, when you abandon yourself wholly to something. Mm. What are the risks? What are the threats? What are the dangers? How do we keep control of ourselves but at the same time give ourselves li- liberty to give in to things? And that, that was a, a tension always in him as a person and it's a tension he explores in his work. That's fascinating. Now, as well as being your friend, you say that he mentored you. And I want to know how he mentored you. I mean, did he read your work and critique it? Or did you talk more loosely about what it meant to be a writer in Australia? I didn't give him my manuscripts when I was writing, but I talked to him about choices I was making and sometimes sent him sections early on. Certainly, he counselled and mentored me about what it meant to be a writer. And in Australia, yes, one of the conversations I very much remember having with him, and it's alluded to in one of his essays, was after five years in New York, I had the opportunity to stay there and make a career there. But I was 36. I was wanting to have children and I wanted to be near my family. And Frank and I had a long, in fact, through via fax, it was the days of the fax machine, had a long correspondence about what that meant. 
And he said to me, well, you are making a very important choice here. You're choosing family and, and close friends over what would certainly be a much larger career as a writer, potentially, if you stay in New York. So that was the kind of mentoring he gave me. And many other writers, I mean, Julia Lee and Matt Condon stand out to me as two writers who he very closely mentored. America had such a profound influence on his writing and the Americans like Hemingway and Steinbeck in particular. Can you just maybe explore that? Well, this is interesting. Michael Wilding, who was a very important friend of Frank's and also a writer in the early 70s, were fascinated with the short story form. And, of course, the American short story, you know, Raymond Carver, Hemingway, a, a range of writers. And, but they, what they found very much was that in Australia, Australian writing was very much under the thrall of Henry Lawson, that kind of bush narrative in the short story form. And that had remained very influential even into the 70s. And what they wanted to do was break free of what they saw as the constraints of that kind of short story writing and writing a contemporary voice. And Frank, of course, even invents a literary genre, the discontinuous narrative, where he he takes short stories and and characters recur throughout them and he stitches them together into a larger narrative. So that's, I think, where the influence of the American writers was important, that the, the short story, the contemporary short story, as a form of expression. And actually it just occurred to me, given something you said earlier about the book being almost, my book being a kind of compartmentalised book, maybe it's a bit of a discontinuous narrative. <laughs> Perhaps I've unconsciously channelled Frank there. Perhaps you have. But, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, also, I'm just thinking now on the spot about Hemingway and Steinbeck as two writers who epitomise a kind of macho realism. And I'm wondering whether Frank would have bucked against that machismo in their writing at that point or whether he was still too sexually unformed to notice it? No, I think that he did chafe against that. We talked about it. And this is why if I'm comparing him to a living Australian writer, it would be Helen Garner Mm. because right from the get-go, Frank's there writing about domestic life. He's writing about gender and sexuality in a in a very detailed way, he's interested in the personal, he's interested in in some of the ethical questions that are reminiscent of Helen Garner, who I just think is an absolute genius of a writer. And he writes about, he's able to write about women with sympathy and understanding that I find very rare in a male author. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I want to go back to the archive for a moment because one of the great virtues of Frank from a biographer's point of view is that he kept absolutely everything. You acknowledge that you got a lot of help from his archivist, Nicholas Pounder, whom I know as a secondhand bookseller who has tremendous knowledge, obviously, of secondhand books generally, their value, context, etc. But Can you just explain what it means that Nicholas was Frank's archivist and how that worked for you? 
Uh, well, I've known Nicholas since I was at uni in my early 20s and I used to bumble into his bookshop in Victoria Street, King's Cross, and he would often look at me and say a little archly, ah, Miss Lumby, I have a book that you might like. <laughs> <laughs> so he's always had a fairly, a one, we've had a, we have a friendship, but he's always been educating me is how I would put it, and he accompanied me on many of the trips to the archives that I made and suggested particular boxes of material, which was terribly good of him. Frank trusted him completely. And so to be an archivist in the way Nicholas is, is to form a genuine relationship with the subject of your archive. And in fact, there was a file that we may be discussing that Nicholas kept sealed and didn't put in the archive until Frank's death. And after the memorial service, Nicholas rang me up and said, come over, I have something to show you. And in that file was some very threatening postcards that Frank had been receiving for years from all around the world. And he didn't want attention drawn to while he was alive. That's right. Now, this is the episode where he has a gun. I mean, we've known for a while that he's had a gun, but in fact, it turns out that he has been going out and culling or shooting kangaroos. Yes, which is not unusual for a man of his generation from a country town. I mean, he didn't do habitually go out and shoot kangaroos for the fun of it, but he kangaroo shooting is something that, you know, people who have grown up on a farm or grown up in country towns in that era did. And he took a visiting American editor out, roo shooting, some photographs emerged and there was a society Mm. or a strangely named society who took, you know, who objected to this on an animal animal rights grounds and uh, but sent him very threatening postcards from all around the world. It was very strange. And Frank did have a slightly paranoid side to him and I, I, I imagine that that caused him huge distress and pain and concern. Yes, I found myself talking to one of the postcard senders inadvertently at a lunch just recently. So I'm I'm very fascinated by this particular episode. I'm really tantalised by what you say about Nicholas pointing you towards various boxes. Did you think that that meant that there were other boxes that you didn't have to sift through or did you go through everything? Can you just explain that? Yeah, no, I did not go through everything. Nicholas, I was very lucky to have Nicholas as a guide. Because Frank kept absolutely everything, ephemera like aeroplane menus from the 1970s and American Express card receipts. And, you know, so some of the boxes were, you know, in my view, not fit for purpose when it came to the book I was writing. Matthew, on the other hand, Matthew Lamb, has taken a very different approach And I'm not surprised that it's a two-volume biography because Matthew is a far more detailed person than I am. I'm a kind of big-picture thinker, and I'm not saying Matthew's not a big-picture thinker, but he's equally, he has a patience for detail, which I do not have, and he would be there photographing, you know, almost every document in every box. Did you rely more on interviews with people then than you did on his letters? Both. But the interviews guided me towards the files that I selected, along with Nicholas Pounder's excellent guidance. So I toed and froed between interviews and the archives. Sometimes Nicholas would suggest something in the archives. 
I would make notes on it and then I'd interview the person. Sometimes I'd interview someone and then I'd go back to the archives, find their file and then go back to them. I did 45 interviews apart from the 25 with Frank and I asked everyone I interviewed to go over their transcripts and gave them the opportunity to add or redact. This comes back to the principle of do no harm because uh, actually, you know, Fiona Giles, who was terribly important in Frank's life and who's the subject of a book called 4017, she was 17 when she met him and they had a, started a relationship that lasted 13 years. Now, Fiona's a close friend of mine mm. and she's a writer herself and we, we had multiple interactions over what, we, what I would put in the book and what I would leave out and whether I would name her in the book because these days a 37-year-old man having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl is very perhaps rightly contentious. In the end, she decided she wanted to be named and she wanted to speak about it. But that was, that's an example of that toing and froing that I did. Yeah, it's so ironic, isn't it, that Frank didn't care about privacy, but you respect his privacy and that of others. And one way that you do that is you that you choose not to out his gay lovers. Was that something oh, yes. that you discussed with him? Yes, I discussed it with Frank. But for me, it was, and I think he was worried about that. There was a, a relationship he had with a man that started again when he was 17. So this little echo there of Fiona and an older man, and that sexual relationship and friendship continued right up until Frank's 70s. But this man was never out. He has a family, and he, even though he's not with us, and there's a huge file of letters between them, to talk about that would be potentially to harm his family or, or, or give them a, a, a surprise they didn't want. So... I've chosen not to reveal any of that, even though I knew it. Could you not, I'm just thinking aloud here, could you not have not named him but still have quoted from their correspondence? I think it would have been too identifying, frankly. And having decided not to go there and having decided that really there are aspects of Frank's love life and erotic life I've mentioned when relevant and, and people have agreed to it, but generally speaking, I don't think it's the most interesting thing about him. I think it's interesting that he was writing about homosexual sex in, in the late 1960s and I'm interested in how he deals with that subject matter and how he related to his own sexuality. But the, the minutiae of his sexual relationships with other people isn't a subject that I find particularly interesting. Hmm. No, I wondered because one of the things about the relationship with Fiona Giles is obviously you call it his amour fou. I mean, he was obviously crazy about her mm. and obviously it was a very intense relationship. And you say that after it ended, he wrote her a suicide note that was not sent. And I wondered, does that mean that he had suicidal tendencies? Did he suffer from depression? He did suffer from depression occasionally. Yeah, look, he was a very intense person, you know, and, you know, the, the, the letter you're referring to is right at the end of what I call the Fiona files. This is a huge three-volume set of files in the archives and it's, they're both beautiful writers, of course, and mm. so it can, they contain very pornographic letters. <laughs> Maybe they should be published. Fiona and I have joked about that. <laughs> but 
Yes, the last item in that, those files, is an opened, undated, unsent letter to Fiona, which is a suicide note. Frank always had a gun and, you know, I think probably people very close to him may have been concerned at times that, you know, because he was depressive, may, may have been concerned about him having a gun, but I'm not aware that Frank ever made a suicide attempt, a serious one. Mm. You know, one of the things that strikes me just reading your book and talking to you about him now, because I think that there was, as well as this dark side, I think there was a very playful, irreverent side to his nature and his temperament. And I can't help but think, Catherine, that he was ideally suited to devising a literary hoax. And yet, as far as we know, he never (laughs) perpetrated a literary hoax. But it seems to me that if you think of the people in the Australian literary landscape who might be hoaxers, (laughs) he would be a perfect one. I think that's a brilliant insight. It had never occurred to me. But he certainly, we discussed the Earn Malley hoax, and he certainly was a very playful man. I think one of the ways I can expand on that is to say one of the things he loved to do was play games over lunch. So I tell a story in the book about we went to lunch at the boathouse to have oysters and drink the appropriate beverage. I think it was a dry flinty Riesling. He had a view on beverages that went with particular foods. And we were having oysters and, and Riesling. And I said to him, just apropos nothing, Frank, do you think monogamy can ever work? And he went, no. And he suddenly took this, appeared to take this subject very seriously and he summoned a waiter for napkins and a pen. And we spent the lunch designing the monogamy house because he said, I think I have a solution. We just need the right house. (laughs) It ended up being 30 storeys tall with a his and hers flossing room. (laughs) So that was, he loved to play those kind of games. Matt Condon tells a story about how they were at the Bayswater Brasserie, which was you know, Frank's friends referred to as his office, jokingly, because he loved going there for lunch or for a cocktail. And Matt and he were sitting there and a very attractive young couple were sitting across the room and they started speculating on who these couple were and they decided eventually that she was a the daughter of a wealthy landowner who came from Scone and that he was a merchant banker but he had a creative side so he was also a part-time installation artist. And <laughs> they made up these elaborate stories about these people and then Frank went over to check and it turns out he revealed that they were two Swedish backpackers who'd arrived the next the day before. <laughs> so, you know, I think that he, he, loved, he loved to play those sort of games. Well, and one of his more eccentric projects, it has to be said, was a theme park called the Cape Mythical National Park, which he came up with in the 1990s. Now, what was that about? Well, this is Frank's love of grand schemes. And this is exactly where something that starts as a joke can become serious for him. So he decided that he was fascinated by the idea of the National Park, the fact that people went to self-consciously look at nature (laughs) and be conscious of being in nature. And he he found that kind of a funny notion. So he decided there should be a theme park based around the concept of the National Park, but with all sorts of peculiar exhibits. So, for instance, there'd be a door left slightly ajar, which was the the behind-the-scenes exhibit where you could peek behind the door and see what the staff were doing. You could buy packages of rail germs 
So people leaving bacteria on the railings, you could buy this in the gift shop. There was um, an exhibit called the, the Dog in the Back of the Ute, but the dog was animatronic and the dog had things to say to people about being in the back of the ute. And my favourite of all was the last exhibit, which was the Aphrodisiac Springs, where people had to sign a waiver before they sampled the water. <laughs> so but this, this started as a kind of playful joke, perhaps over lunch with friends, I'm not sure. And eventually he was actually quite seriously seeking private venture capital to get this theme park built. And there's a whole file on in the archives on that. So this is, you know, it's a very apposite observation that, yes, he would have been the ideal person to perpetrate a literary hoax, but he, he exhibited those tendencies in other ways. And that's, you know, also his wonderful sense of humour and playfulness. Absolutely. Now, on a more serious note, he was an early campaigner against surveillance and censorship. But the thing that got him really fired up, that we really all owe him an immense debt of gratitude for, is his championing of copyright. Now, what got him so fired up about this? Well, this is about author's rights. Frank made the very brave decision at the age of 30 to leave the ABC where he was working as a journalist and make a full-time living as a writer in Australia, which is very difficult to do. Very few people do that. And he stitched together a living by part-time journalist, journalistic writing, royalties, grants, you know, and he went through some very lean patches as a result. In the early 1980s, older listeners will remember that photocopies came into libraries. And what was happening, particularly in universities, but also in schools, was that entire books were being copied and therefore bypassing the, the royalties that an author might receive. And Peter Banke, um, who was one of Australia's senior copyright lawyers, and David Coturns, took Frank to the Marble Bar at the Sydney Hilton and said, look, we want you to put your name to a case that we're going to bring against a university, UNSW, on the basis that they are not preventing the wholesale copying of books. And Frank said he thought to himself, ah, so you want me to put my name to a case that basically implicates librarians, students, teachers, pretty much every serious reader of books in Australia. And he says, I was a young author. This seemed like a problem. Indeed, as a young author, I had nothing but problems in my life. <laughs> but it's a, mark, a hallmark of his courage that he did put his name to this case. They had already arranged for one of his books to be copied without his knowledge and then asked him to put his name to the case. And it went all the way to the High Court. And that is why writers today are paid royalties mm. for the copying of their work. Yeah, well, thank you, Frank. I mean, that was an extraordinary achievement that has such a lasting kind of legacy. While we're talking about legacy, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here because we still have to talk about his magnum opus. But, you know, he was a very diverse writer, wasn't he? He wrote novels, short stories, essays, memoir, erotica, screenplays. I wonder whether that diversity of styles that he could turn his hand to means that there's a kind of diffuse sense of him as a writer that makes it harder for people to find or to gain purchase on his work now. So, you know, writers go out of fashion. And it seems to me that 
that happens particularly acutely and quickly these days and in Australia. Do you think there is a danger that Frank is being forgotten or is out of fashion and that because he wrote in so many different genres, people don't know where to start? Certainly he wrote in many different genres, nonfiction, humorous essays, and then large novels, as well as, you know, the, the discontinuous narrative of short stories in one volume. People have often said to me, I cannot understand the connection between these different modes of writing. And in a way, this biography is my attempt to answer that question and to say the through, through line is about this fascination with how many rules we need to live by. I think that was a that's an obsession that emerges in all of his work. It's interesting, I talk to young people because I'm an academic at a university and I've asked them while I was writing this book, do you know about Frank Morehouse? And a lot of them haven't read him. Mm. I don't think it's that he's out of fashion. I think that perhaps it's a symptom of the fact that young people don't read as much as they used to. But if I'm trying to give someone an entree into his work, I will always recommend Grand Days, the first volume in the Edith trilogy, because I think it's a, a book that reads more like a conventional novel and it's an entree. And I think if you've read the trilogy, then you're far more likely to go and pick up the humorous essays and the nonfiction books. Yes, well, of course, that, that's a perfect segue because <laughs> you mentioned before that he came quite early to writing in a female voice and that reaches its apotheosis in the Edith Campbellberry trilogy. I know people who are complete Edith fanatics. <laughs> Why has this character captured so many people's imagination? And can you just give us a sort of sense of the narrative arc of Edith's trajectory? Yes, so Edith Campbell Berry is a young girl from a from a south coast New South Wales town. So so in a way we we're immediately told that she's a cipher for Frank. He's also said that she's a cipher for his mother, but I see her very much as a cipher for Frank. And she embarks on this grand scheme, this grand mission to go and work at the League of Nations in Geneva. Now the League of Nations fascinated Frank precisely because it was a body set up to try and prevent another world war after the tragedy of the Great War. And it was a, an absolutely amazing attempt to design global rules for living, to, I guess, civilise the world. And like all grand schemes, there's a sort of, it's very ambitious, but it's also slightly or faintly ridiculous at one point they tried to standardise the calendar, but the Pope objected because of Easter or something and the Chinese objected for some other reason. And so it's so Edith embarks on a, a personal adventure, but she also embraces this grand adventure that the League of Nations represents. And the Grand Days is about the heady rise of the League of Nations, Dark Palace is about its tragic fall in the wake of the rise of fascism, particularly in Germany. And so it's, a, it's also a meditation and reflection on the question of, you know, is humanity doomed, I guess, to continually repeat its mistakes? And, I mean, you know, we're talking now at a time where there's 
horrific loss of life in the Middle East. Frank was someone who thought very deeply about these very large questions of why does humanity continue on paths of destruction? And then in cold light, Edith comes back to Australia and that's about the rise of Canberra. And again, Canberra has a kind, is a kind of grand scheme. The capital appeals to Edith and, and Canberra is a very planned city. So again, there's that theme of rules for living which is expressed through architecture and expressed through, well, in Canberra's case, legislation. And what is it to be a nation? So this is the other theme in the trilogy. What is the relationship between the nation state and our obligations as citizens of the world? The Australian literary world that Frank belonged to and was very much a sort of central and high visibility kind of figure of was quite a bitchy world back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. It seems to me that, well, not so much the 70s maybe, but it seems to me that because there were only crumbs available in terms of funding and prizes, there was a lot of rivalry, there was a lot of backstabbing, there was some feeling of maybe brotherhood and of being a sort of a small community, but there wasn't always a sense that that small community looked after each other. Did Frank make enemies in the literary world? Certainly there were fallings out. One of the things I'm conscious of is that of all the people I interviewed, I very there were no one said a bad word. And at a certain point I thought, gee, I hope this doesn't read like a hagiography. But then I interviewed David Williamson, who I have great admiration for, and David said, and I believe him, that when he arrived in Balmain from Melbourne, he and his wife, who's also a writer, that Frank was like the mayor of Balmain, he described him. And he said they were, they were invited along to a lunch with all these other writers, I think probably Peter Kerry would have been there and Murray Bale and the literary critic Don Anderson and their partners. And he said he felt that he was being put to the test by Frank and that he didn't, he, David says he felt quite unsophisticated, that there was a sort of competition to be the wittiest at the table. Mm. Now, he then discovered that Frank had been interviewed prior to his arrival and had described him as a, as a sort of something like a mediocre recycler of Australian vernacular, <gasps> his plays. Ouch. Ouch. And I think that's very unfair to David Williamson, who really broke new ground in Australian theatre. And I suspect that Frank harboured jealousy because David Williamson was very commercially successful and that's one of the reasons they ended up leaving Melbourne because there was a lot of bitchiness towards the Williamsons there. So, yes, there was rivalry and, you know, Australia at this point is a, still a very small literary market, so it's competition for resources as much as competition for who's top dog. And these are sort of young male writers. I mean, there were female writers too, of course, but the male writers were kind of young bulls in a paddock, I guess, to mm. some extent. And I, I didn't interview Peter Carey, but I suspect because of other things he said publicly about Frank Morehouse, that there was always, well, there was a lack of affection between them and a lack of respect. Yes, yes, I think that comes through on the issue of a particular mishap to do with a prize. So I, th I think you, you illustrate that perfectly 
eloquently. Now, to his regret and his shame, he did not, by his own admission, engage sufficiently with the history of Indigenous people. What made him think about that? Because I'm, I'm really glad that you mention it, but how, how did that realisation and awareness come to him? Well, it's interesting because in the 70s, there was a land rights movement and the Freedom Ride, of course, the 60s. And, and so Frank was part of those politics. But he never, when he wrote about Nowra, and he did write, we well, wrote a whole book really based in Nowra or a Nowra-like town called The Electrical Experience. So, but he, he had no, at the time, curiosity about the First Nations inhabitants. And in Nowra, 10% of the population are Indigenous still. It's a very Anglo town, but, you know, with that one exception demographically. And what happened was when Frank was in his 70s, a book was published by Jennifer Jones called The Country Women's Association and the Colour Bar, in which there's a whole chapter on Frank Morehouse's mother, Perth, who employed an Indigenous nanny called Belle McLeod. And she's interviewed for the book and she talks about the Morehouse family so this is quite an extraordinary discovery for Frank. He remembers Belle and he suddenly thinks, I know nothing about her background and her family. In fact, I know nothing about the First Nations inhabitants of this region and the history of how they were dispossessed of their land and their culture. So it was, it was a matter of not just curiosity to him, but a matter of regret, as he expressed it to me, that that he hadn't thought to actually investigate this more deeply. And in fact, look, the last couple of years of his life, he wasn't particularly well, but he did at one point say to me, I'm thinking of writing a book about this. But clearly, unless there's an unpublished, unfinished manuscript there, he hasn't done so, but he certainly was deeply reflective about that. Mm. I think as a lot of Australians are today, I think we haven't yet entirely obviously come to terms with the dispossession of First Nations people mm. and, and righted those wrongs in any way we can. Catherine, has writing this biography given you an appetite now that you've kind of mastered the genre and you've you've made it your own? Has it given you an appetite for doing this about another writer or was this dictated entirely by the fact that you had a head start in that you had a friendship which forms the bedrock of what you've written? I will never write another biography. <laughs> Why so vehement? I'm not sorry I wrote this one because I was on a mission to give my version of Frank and to interest people in the man's writing and his life. And also, I suppose, if this is selfish as a writer, I don't know, to channel my own obsessions through him, to use him as a vehicle. I always wished that I'd been born a decade earlier. I feel I belonged in the 70s. And to be part of that second wave feminist movement. I feel like the 80s pales in comparison and it just sounds like a great time to be young and alive. In writing this book, I'm on one hand explaining or giving a version of why Frank matters and secondly I'm, I'm giving myself the delight of exploring debates over censorship and author's rights and and you know, my fascination with gender and sexuality 
through Frank size. So no way, but had I known when I began how much writing a biography takes out of you, compared to the sort of books that I've written in the past, which tend to be Catherine Lumby thinks blah, 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 this one has facts in it. So, (laughs) and that's very annoying. They, They tend to get in the way of writing. I did tell you that David Marr told me I was mad, not just for not writing it chronologically, but for embarking on a biography in the first place. And he was quite right. You break the fundamental rule as far as purists like David are concerned, which is that you are visible. You are there as the narrator navigator selecting the material. And from David's point of view, you know, that is an absolute no-no. Helen Garner is just a standout writer for me Mm. and I've been, you know, in love with her work ever since Monkey Grip. And she, uh, towards the end of writing this book, the first, cha- the, fir- the introduction originally was a, a, a long extended reflection on the ethics of biography, which I've now put into the afterward because I read an essay she wrote about David Marr's biography of Patrick White in which she applauds the fact that he does not start with what she calls bullshit preamble. And I, I look, went back to the introduction. I went, oh, hell, it's all bullshit preamble. Thank you, Helen. <laughs> so I, I, I cut that and I put it at the back for people who are interested. So I guess some people might find it a bit self-indulgent, the way that I reflect on the task of biography and insert myself. I've tried, I've certainly, it's not an academic kind of book, but for me, that also is reflective of Frank. He put himself into his short stories and with sometimes thin disguise. And he saw saw that as a sort of duty. And Helen Garner does the same thing, it must be said, though always with savage self-scrutiny on her part. Absolutely, absolutely, with a gimlet eye. And talking of gimlets, Frank wrote a memoir called Martini. It was his favourite drink. I know that when he went bushwalking just for reasons of logistics, he preferred bourbon. But I want to ask you as my final question today, what for Frank was the secret of a really good martini? Well, I think the first thing was the proportions in which it was made. He makes that very clear. And there's a joke he tells called the martini rescue. When you are lost in the bush, you take out the gin, the vermouth, and uh, you mix yourself a martini with the cocktail shaker that every sophisticated trekker carries. You will not be lost for long. Within five minutes, someone will tap you on the shoulder and say that is not the correct way to make a martini. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly the proportions and the coldness. It has to be icy cold. But the second thing is where you drink the martini and who you drink it with. So this is about the con- conviviality of the situation and it's about the etiquette of conversation when you're drinking. For him, martinis were to be shared and to be drunk in moderation and there was a way to make them, there was a person or people to share them with and there was a point at which martini drinking must stop and there were rules about that too. That conversation really did make me want to go and have a cocktail. Catherine Lumby captures the essence of a man with many facets, and we didn't even talk about his cross-dressing or about the significance of a childhood accident in which he got a very sensitive part of his anatomy caught in the fork of a tree. You'll have to read Matthew Lamb to find out more about that. 
Her portrait of him did make me want to embark on the Edith trilogy, which until now has seemed a very daunting prospect. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences, which is produced on Darawal Country by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. If you're a Mac user, please think about leaving us a review on the Apple Podcast app, as it really helps.